if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I don't recall the first time that question caught my attention, but it still challenges my soul. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And by evidence, I don't mean how many Bibles you own or whether or not you have a fish bumper sticker on your car or that you even signed a decision card. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? What witnesses might we call to the stand? Co-worker, spouse, children, neighbor, schoolmate, boss, owner of the local store, relative? I mean, what evidence have they seen? You say, well, wait a minute, pastor. Isn't faith all that matters? Isn't my faith just between God and me? Well, in this section of Scripture in James chapter 2, there's an argument going on. It's an ongoing concern about the importance of faith and whether that faith can withstand the absence of works. At times, we tend to view works as the enemy of faith. But hopefully, by the time we leave this passage today, we'll be more convinced that faith and works were meant to be the closest of friends. And so the main thought I see in this section is that faith and works are the closest of friends in this journey of the Christian life. Faith and works are the closest of friends in this journey of the Christian life. How we live proves who we are. Isn't that the theme that flows through uh, the whole of James? That's what's made it so difficult as we've worked our way through this book. James calls his readers and us to a faith and action. The question he would have us answer is, is your faith real? Is your faith real? How do we know? We'll run your faith through a series of tests, James says. Test one. How do we respond to trials? Test two, how do we respond to temptation? Test three, how do we respond to truth? And last week, the test of our faith was how do we treat people? How do we treat people? Do we treat others based on their appearances? Or is it grounded in the truth that we've been transformed by the mercy of Christ? Let me say it again. How we live proves who we are. That is what James hits hard in this section we're looking at this morning. Is your faith real? Here's the next test. Is it a faith that works? Is it a faith that works? Is your faith the best kept secret or is it obvious that your life has undergone a transformation? As Warren Worsby puts it, no one can come to Christ by faith and remain the same any more than he can come into contact with a 220-volt wire and remain the same. If you come into contact with the living Christ, then James would say there would have to be something to show for it. Now, it's in verses 17 and 26 that state the principle uh, that he's going to flesh out this morning. James chapter 2, verse 17, and then also verse 26. Follow along as I read James 2, verse 17. It says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Then go down to verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. A faith that is alone is no faith at all. I call this a lonely faith. It does not walk with its companion named works. Faith works. Now this can get tricky this morning as we unpack this section of Scripture. We must keep our eye on the ball all the way through. 
Now, I need to make a couple of points before we look at the specifics of this section to help us keep our eye on the ball. Many have made the false conclusion that this section in James is in contradiction to what Paul says elsewhere in Scripture. Often the deduction is made that Paul's words of faith alone is at odds with James' words of faith alone, which is a dead faith. Now, for example, Paul in Romans chapter 4 says, To the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. In Ephesians, Paul says it again, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And Paul makes it clear to those who seek to earn their way into heaven by what they do, that no one can earn favor with God. He cannot make his way into heaven through any effort of his own, but by grace alone. It is never what we do, but is what Christ has done. Works have no value in bringing a person into relationship with Christ. God will not accept you on the basis of your works. Scripture teaches that justification is by grace alone. It's received by faith alone, trusting in Jesus Christ alone, our great God and Savior. And that salvation is not contingent on me, but Jesus. Not what I do, but what he did through his death, burial, and resurrection. Not through the life I live, but through the death he died. It's not my own doing. It's a gift that I receive. And I just trust Jesus. And when I stand before God the Father, my answer will be Jesus. Jesus. That's my answer. Because no one could stand before God and say, I was baptized as a baby. I went to church my whole life. I gave real generously. I tried to do good deeds. I helped the poor. I looked after orphans and widows. I mean, all of that may be well and good, but it's not sufficient for you to overcome your debt of sin to God. It's not sufficient to pay the penalty of your debt to God. And it's absolutely critical that we get that right. And James here would not disagree. James is writing to those who have professed to come to knowledge of Christ, yet have nothing to show for it in how they live. He's not teaching a works-based salvation. James is dealing a healthy blow to any attempt to suggest that faith and works can be separated. James is not going to play that game. Again, faith and works are not enemies, but rather closest of friends in this journey of the Christian life. It was John Calvin who put it this way, faith alone saves, but a faith that saves is never alone. So James addresses this matter of what about works, which, by the way, Paul does the same thing. Uh, We're not going to look at all of it, but Ephesians 2.10, after speaking of it's by grace alone, through faith alone, he mentions works in there. And in in verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. Titus 2.11-14, same thing. But what is worth mentioning is in, in, in this passage that we're looking at is about, is about the contrast. What is worth mentioning is that the contrast here in this section in James is not between faith and works. It's not between faith and works. That isn't what he's contrasting. The contrast is between a false faith and a true faith, a dead faith and a living faith, a lonely faith and a faith accompanied by works. Faith without works is a lonely faith, and a lonely faith, James says, is dead. You know, we do all kinds of cartwheels around this section of Scripture. I think think sometimes we make make it more complicated than it is so we don't have to deal with it. 
Isn't that true? If I can make it kind of messy here, then I won't have to do what it's telling me to do because I really don't know what it's saying. But what should be crystal clear are the marks of a lonely and dead faith. James provides us with three marks of a dead faith. He speaks of an empty confession, mark number one, false compassion, mark number two, and then a shallow conviction, mark number three. So the first mark of a dead faith is an empty confession. Empty confession. Verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Now the key to understanding verse 14 is wrapped up in the word claims. The word claims is in the present tense, suggesting that he's saying he has faith. He's boasting of that faith over and over again, but there's no fruit to show for it. He's all talk. And so when the question is asked here, can such faith save him? It's written in such a way that calls for a negative answer. No, it cannot save. What cannot save? A lonely faith. A faith that is absent of works. I mean, he can claim it all he wants. He can claim to be a Christian in his loudest voice. But James says, in essence, you can talk Christianity all you want, but are you walking the talk? I'm reminded of the young boy who was sitting on the front row watching a ventriloquist perform with his dummy on his lap. And the dummy proceeded to ask the boy questions and, and talk with him. And the young boy just loved this interaction with this dummy. Thinking he had found a, new found, fr- found a new friend, the young boy approached the dummy after the show to ask him to come over and play. The ventriloquist told the boy, the, the dummy cannot do that. The boy persisted, and the same answer was given. The the, the dummy cannot do that. The boy became frustrated and in tears asked, well, why not? The ventriloquist replied, son, he doesn't do anything. He just talks. He doesn't just do anything. He just talks. Now, that shouldn't be said of a true believer This isn't speaking to arriving at perfection, but progress is being made in our walk with the Lord. There ought to be some observable fruit in our lives to back up that claim. Now again, it seems as though James has, has uh, as as he's often done, has the words of Jesus, his, his brother, on his mind. For Jesus said, a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit in Matthew chapter 7. A good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And the problem that James has is he has a lot of people saying, we're the third kind of tree. We're the Christian tree with no fruit. And James says, there's no such thing as a Christian tree with no fruit. That doesn't exist. It's been said this way, the presence of deeds cannot be used to argue the presence of faith, but the absence of deeds may be used to argue the absence of faith. So there's a belief which is not true. Faith. It's an empty confession. That's Mark number one. Then, G, then, then James gives an illustration of what such a lonely faith looks like in verses 15 through 17. Follow along as I read. Verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. A second mark of a dead faith is false Compassion, false compassion. James seems to be speaking of a hypothetical situation to make his point of a real problem that can exist in the Christian community, that this person is a great talker. And he says to the one uh, who is insufficiently clothed and insufficiently unnourished, he says to him, go in peace. 
Go in peace. Now, we might say uh, to someone, good luck to you. Or if we want to use some Christianese, we might, God, might add, God bless you, or, or I'll pray for you. But words of compassion should never be a cover-up for acts of compassion. I saw a Peanuts cartoon. Here we go again. Charlie Brown and Linus are inside all bundled up while Snoopy's out in the cold, shivering in front of an empty dog food bowl. Charlie and Brown and Linus are having a discussion of how sad it is that, that, that Snoopy is, is hungry and cold. He's cold and hungry, they say to each other. We've got to do something about it. And so they walk outside and they, and, they, and they meet up with Snoopy and they say to Snoopy, be of good cheer, Snoopy. Be of good cheer. Then they return to the warmth of their house. <laughs> and I read that Charles Schultz got that idea from this verse. What good is it, my brothers, if you see someone in need and you say, I feel for you. Eugene Peterson said it this way about this verse. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? What good is it, James asks? How does an old cliche profit and help the person who's lacking the necessities of life? How does handing someone a track help them be well fed and properly clothed? How did Spurgeon put it? Spurgeon put it if you want to give a hungry person a track, wrap it in a sandwich. Oh, I think someone else said, if you want to give a hungry person a sandwich, wrap it in a track. I don't know how it goes, but, but there you are. The point is, it is absurd to think that the gospel has truly gripped you if you choose to sit idly by and do nothing about the needs around you. How does that eternally significant relationship you claim to have with Jesus help that person in need? In the same way, James says, verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, a lonely faith, if it's not accompanied by action, is what? Sick? A little unhealthy? No, it's dead, it says. And you know what dead is? Not alive. You might want to write that down. But notice the words, in the same way. What is James getting at? Well, in the same way that your mere words do nothing for that person in need, your faith without works does nothing for your soul. Now, I remind you, acts of mercy are not means for salvation. But if you are truly saved, there will be acts of mercy. Acts of mercy and caring for a need that you can do something about should overflow out of our lives. There will be fruit. What good is it? A dead faith profits no one, not even you. It's no different than the Levite and the priest who would not stop to help the dying man in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Both the Levite and the priest might have had all their theological T's crossed and all their theological I's dotted, but what good was it? It helped no one. Verse 20, James calls it useless. It is useless. It's barren. Your faith is no good for others. It's no good for you. And how foolish you are to think otherwise. And that's what he says in verse 18 as he has this little argument going on with his imaginary friends. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Now, if you underline and mark up your Bible, underline or circle the words, show me, show me. And I find it interesting that James challenges the one with the lonely faith, a faith without works, to show him his faith. To show him his faith. How can he show him? How can he demonstrate a faith when there's nothing to demonstrate it with? That's exactly James's point. True faith works. Faith and works are inseparable. 
You could liken it to two oars of a boat. One oar is marked faith and the second oar is marked works. You put the one oar into the water and not the other and you row. You're just going to go in a tight circle, but you can never make it across the lake. You can put one oar in and and not the other and, and and anywhere, but all you're going is in circles. You're not going anywhere. You need both oars working simultaneously in order to keep the boat in a straight and narrow way. If you do not have the use of both oars, you cannot make progress across the lake or in your Christian life. It is useless. A dead faith is an empty confession. It's marked by false compassion. And thirdly, a third mark of a dead faith is a shallow conviction. A shallow conviction. A real faith is more than saying the right words. It's even more than knowing the right things. Real faith is more than mental assent to the truth. In the Gospel of Mark, during the life of Jesus, we find these words. It says, when we saw Jesus, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, Jesus, son of the most high God. Now, we read those words, and what might you conclude about the one who saw Jesus and responded to Jesus in that way? Jesus, son of the most high God. Well, we might say, there's a person of faith. There's one who is clear on who Jesus is and doesn't care who hears him say it. He shouts it out. And you might say, I want a faith like that. Well, I hope not. Because you know who said those words and responded to Jesus that way? A demon. A demon. James says in verse 19, you believe that there's one God? And every good Jewish man and Jewish woman knew the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, hear the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, James says, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You say, I believe all this. Demons believe in the existence of God. There are no atheistic demons. Demons believe in the deity of Christ. Demons believe in the existence of heaven and hell. And loved ones, I am concerned that in sanctuaries across evangelical churches this very morning are people who have only intellectual assent. They have the right belief about God, but do not have a faith that saves. Yes, maybe even in this room. It's not mere intellectual assent, James says. It's not just having all your theology right. And James goes on to say that true faith is not simply an emotional response. Notice how the demons are touched at an emotional level. Level It says that they shudder. They are emotionally affected by the reality of God. And how many build their Christianity and how they feel? Is it possible for a person to be enlightened in his mind and even stirred in his heart and be lost forever? James says, yes, it is possible. Now, James is not saying that what we believe and how we feel are not important. If that's all there is, then you are simply on the same plane as demons. There must be more than that. Faith involves willful obedience. Faith acts. Faith works. Faith creates works and works complete faith. And that's where James goes next. And he puts two people on trial to prove his point that a lonely faith is no faith at all, but, must, but faith must be accompanied by works. They are of closest friends in our journey with Christ. And so what's the opposite of a lonely faith? Well, that's where he talks about next, a faith that works. And he puts two people on trial. First, James mentions Abraham. In Genesis 15, 
We don't have time to look there, but, but James makes reference to, to, to Abraham here. He says, was not our ancestor Abraham in verse 21? But that's referring back to Genesis, Genesis uh, 22. But in Genesis 15, God has Abraham look up in the sky at the stars. He then promises childless, aged Abraham that his offspring would be like the stars in the heaven, that he would have many sons. Father Abraham had many sons. You know how it goes. <laughs> well, it's true. That he would have many sons. And it was at that time that Abraham made a decision to take God at his word. It says, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. In Genesis 15, as God paints the picture of what it's going to be like, all Abraham had to do was what? Believe. And Paul in Romans 4 uses Abraham to illustrate that a person is not saved by works, but by faith alone. But is Abraham's faith a lonely faith? Well, roughly 25 or 30 years later, a child is born to Abraham, and God tells him to sacrifice his son Isaac. The same son who is to be the key to the fulfillment of what God said in Genesis 15. And in Genesis 22, he's asking Abraham to lay it all on the line. And Abraham's faith was put to the test in Genesis 22. And James's emphasis to drive home his point is on Genesis 22, not Genesis 15. James, in essence, is saying, how do we know that Abraham believed God? Well, we know that because Genesis 15 tells us that. But how else do we know that Abraham believed God, that Abraham's faith was real because of what Abraham did in Genesis 22? He was willing to sacrifice his son. Genesis 15 had to be worked out in Genesis 22. And James sums up his illustration of Abraham by concluding in verse 24 that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. He was justified. Or we could say the proof of his righteousness is in what he did. And when we are justified before God, meaning our trust is in him for salvation, and God declares us not guilty, we will prove that justification before others. How? By our obedience, by our fellowship of Jesus Christ. And James says that in verse 24. Abraham's faith and his actions work together. It's a play on words. It literally says faith worked with his works. Abraham's faith was accompanied by action. He obeyed God, risking it all for him. Now that's Abraham. But James then points to Rahab to demonstrate how faith and works go hand in hand. Now we can understand why James would use Abraham as a witness uh, to support his principle. Abraham perhaps was the most respected ancestor of the Jewish people. But Rahab... James uses a shady lady from Jericho who got it, believed it, and having believed, demonstrated her faith. And Rahab is then put on the stand. One preacher paints the scene as a prosecuting attorney questioning Rahab. And he goes up to Rahab and says, your name? Rahab, she answers. Occupation? She answers, prostitute. Jewish? She asks. Actually, a Canaanite, a Gentile, she answers. Oh, I see, a Canaanite prostitute. Your knowledge of God, he asks her. Well, I know that the Lord God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Hmm, he says. What about the spies, he asks. Well, uh, she answers, I hid them up on the roof and then helped them escape by a rope through the window. 
Then why did you do this? Why did you hide the spies, he asks. And she answers, one who believes in God would act this way. See, Rahab acknowledged that the God of Israel was the true God. She believed in him. Her heart was right before God. But when she had opportunity to demonstrate her belief in God, she placed her life on the line and hid the spies. She had a living, true faith. She didn't say to the spies, go, I wish, go in peace, I wish you well. She did something. She risked her life and acted on what she knew. Do you have a living faith? Was it a lonely faith, which is a dead faith? A simple profession or claim absent of works is comparable to a corpse. Faith without works is dead, but real faith works. And real faith is not just something you say. Real faith is not just something you feel. Real faith is not just something you think. Real faith is not just something you believe. Real faith is something you do. And James asks, is, this, is that your faith? Is it a living faith, a dynamic faith, a radical faith, a faith that holds nothing back from God and holds nothing back from human need? You see, while it is true that it costs us nothing to become a Christian, it costs us everything to continue to live as one. While it is true that it costs us nothing to become a Christian, it costs us everything to continue to live as one. Now, if I say to you, I believe that being in good physical health is one of the most important things we ought to have. And you say, oh, so do you exercise? Well, no, I answer. Well, do you go for regular checkups? No. Do you eat well? No, no, I don't do that. Do you take vitamins? No. Do you get your needed number of hours of sleep each night? No, no, I don't do that. Do you take a day off from work? No. Do you? Oh, but I believe in good physical health. You say, show me. Doesn't matter what I believe or say that I believe. Do I live what I believe? Do I show it by my actions that I really believe it? You say, I'm a Christian. Do you? Do you? Do you? Show me. James says, Show me. Like Abraham and Rahab, will I risk it all for what I believe? Is mine a radical faith? Will I lay it all on the line for God? Reminded of the well-told story, the famous tightrope walker named George Blondin, who for a publicity stunt decided he would walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. On the appointed day, they stretched a tightrope from one side of Niagara Falls to the other, and there were crowds lined up on both the Canadian and the American side, and thousands of people showed up to see this unbelievable feat. London walked up to the edge of the tightrope. He put one foot on the tightrope and then another foot, and he began to walk across inch by inch and step by step. He'd get out in the middle, and everybody knew that if he'd make one mistake in balance, he'd fall off the rope into the falls and obviously be killed. Blondin got to the other side, and the crowd went wild, shouting and cheering. And Blondin said, I'm going to go do it again, and he did, and the crowds went crazy. Blondin said, I'm going to do it again, but this time I'm going to push a wheelbarrow full of dirt. And so he pushed the wheelbarrow across. He got to the other side and back, and he did this nine times, back and forth, back and forth. And on the tenth time, he pushed the wheelbarrow right in front of a tourist who said, I believe you could do that all day. And Blondin said, really? 
The tourist answered, absolutely. And Blondin dumped out the dirt in his wheelbarrow, looked at the tourist and said, okay, get in. (laughs) Get in. Show me. Show me. If you're on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Let's pray. Lord, may this convict our hearts. May we look um, to see what it is in our life that um, does not demonstrate a true faith. God, I know this is a hard passage. This is a very difficult passage. I pray that we wouldn't get it all messed up and all confused in our minds as to how works plays out in our our faith. But God, there's no doubt that works does have a part. It is to be uh, come alongside of what we say we believe. So challenge us in our hearts. Show us, Lord, what it is we ought to do about what we just heard and read this morning. We can do it by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray.